and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say I'm going to break the mold two days after my second injury my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home I ran up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall, no quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me, and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. When I'm not recording this podcast, I'm working as a mental performance coach, where I'm really fortunate I get to work with performers both in business and in sport, and I work with them on their mindset, helping them to unlock their potential and enjoy the success of their craft. And I love what I do for a living, so I fired up this podcast to try to find out how others are intentionally setting their mind to be their best. Now, before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you can help out the podcast. So go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers. Once again, that's patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And over there, you'll see how you can help support the show for as little as $2 a month or as much as $10 a month. It really does help us generate some revenue to keep this podcast rolling. So thanks to everybody that's already done so. And we are grateful for those of you that will continue to to support the podcast. Now to today's guest, coach Eric Mangini has spent his entire career working in football. And he's going to talk about his journey, which is certainly a unique one. He did not play in the NFL. He played division three football at Wesleyan and his football journey actually started from a coaching perspective in Australia. So I'm going to let him tell that story. I'm, I'm going to tease it here, but not give you the whole story as he does a much better job telling it than I could. But from there, he started working as an assistant coach with the Cleveland Browns, the Baltimore Ravens, the New England Patriots, until at the age of 34, he was hired as the New York Jets head football coach. And then from there, he went on to become the head football coach with the Cleveland Browns. Today, Coach Mangini works in TV, but he has a wealth of knowledge on culture, on leadership, on mental performance, and he's going to share all of the knowledge and wisdom that he has picked up over the years with you. So I'm so excited to present to you, Coach Eric Mangini. Eric, so glad to have you on the podcast. Uh, I've got to know your family a little bit over the last year, and I'm excited. Uh, I'm actually going to be in Israel with some of your family uh, in the in the coming week. Even though my kids won't be with me uh, there, uh, I will adopt yours, and, and I'm sure they will challenge me in ways that my kids cannot uh, yet. Um, but I'm I'm really excited to chat 
with you. We have had conversations in the past and I know that my listeners are, are going to love listening to your story and also listening to how you see the world and how you've intentionally set your mind and things that you've done along the way. Where I would love to start is really on your football journey. So I know you have a unique football journey. It's different than a lot of other people. So give everyone listening uh, some insight into how you started off uh, in football. Yeah, so I, I loved football growing up and I, I played with my brothers out in uh, or up at the park and oftentimes I would organize the games uh, with the kids that were my age and uh, I played quarterback and, and, and I, I liked it more than, than just sort of a, a casual uh, casual sort of feel and but I never, I never envisioned myself doing anything besides playing football. You know, I, I thought I would play football. I daily play four years in college, but that was it. And, and to some degree, I thought that, that football coaches were glorified gym teachers w- with whistles and thought I was going to be an investment banker like my brother Kyle, who was in, uh, who was working in Australia. So I got to my junior year at Westland and I did a study abroad program in Australia with, with Kyle, uh, you know, with, Kyle being there, and I had some time between when I got there and when uh, school started, and and I didn't really know anybody. Kyle was at work all the time, and a girl that Kyle worked with was at a sporting goods store, and there's this guy named Stan Long at the store, and Stan was trying to get to know this girl, and he told her that uh, he coached an American football team in Australia, so she goes and tells Kyle, Kyle tells me, and I go see Stan Long the next day. I figure maybe I can volunteer for this team. Get, give me something to do. So I volunteered. Stan says I can. We're, we're coaching the Doncaster Devils. And uh, this was before the internet. This is before anybody could check on someone's credentials. But it didn't take very long to see that Stan Long really didn't have a, an in-depth feel for, for running a team, for coaching a team, for, for any of that stuff. So there were a lot of push-ups and sit-ups and running, but we weren't, there were no plays. There, there were none of those things. And the Doncaster Devils had been fairly successful. So guys start leading the team and they figure out that Stan really didn't have a coaching background and they let Stan go and they say, Hey, will you coach this team? I'm thinking, can't coach this team. And and then Eric, Eric, just so everyone can follow. So you are a junior at Wesleyan, uh, division three football player. You're playing football at Wesleyan, but you're doing an abroad program um, where your, your brother's over there studying investment banking and you, you get in touch with this guy and he's not equipped or competent to be the football coach. And all of a sudden they're looking to you and you're what, 21 years old at that point? Yeah, maybe, yeah, 21, 22. It's, it's the spring semester. I'm there to go to the University of Melbourne. I was just looking to do something to maybe meet some some guys outside of the university to help out a little bit. But it's pretty obvious that Stan has told a bunch of lies and he has no idea, you know, that what he's doing. And uh, so they say, hey, we just we do this. I'm like, I I can't I can't do this. Come on, just give it a try. So then I called my college football coach, Frank Hauser, and I asked him to help me. So he would fax out information to me from the States. I would study it during the day and then I'd go to practice and I'd install whether it's the punt team, the punt return team, the base defense, all those things. Anyways, about two weeks later, they lost so many guys, the Doncaster Devils fold. So I think, okay, I'm done with football. 
in Australia and I go to the University of Melbourne and the guys that were on the team went to this new expansion team called the Q Colts. And they said, hey, Eric, just come down and take a look at the Colts. So I, I had enjoyed the guys. I would enjoyed what I was doing. It was fun. So I go down and, and they asked me to be the defensive coordinator and, and de facto head coach. And this is the expansion Q Colts. So I do it and we get to our summertime, summertime in the States, um, which the seasons are, are opposite there. And I tell the guys, look, I got to go back to, to the U.S. and make some money for college. I, I need a summer job. And they said, well, what if we paid you the equivalent of what you'd make for your summer job to stay and coach the Colts for the rest of the season? I thought, okay, I get to hang out with my brother. I get to coach this team. I get to stay in Australia. So I do that, and we end up winning the championship. Uh, we beat the Berwick Miners, uh, who had won 26 in a row. Uh, we beat them in the championship, and then it was that was a, a life-changing moment for me. All right, so um, so when you're coaching this team, you haven't you've no coaching experience up until then. Like, had you done any coaching, like maybe some camps or something like that? No. What, what I was trying to say at the, at the beginning of the podcast is. I had always organized the pickup games. I had always liked the idea of, of arranging the teams or playing quarterback of a strategy, but I'd, not, I'd never done any formal coaching. So everything was a function of getting the information, studying the information, starting to think about, okay, what did I like from my coaches? How did I learn the most effectively? What can I give these guys? Oh, and what I didn't tell you is my older brother, Kyle, played for me. Kyle came out and decided to play because he played at Western as well and he wanted to play. So I was now coaching my older brother and Kyle got a uh, penalty early in the championship game. I had to yank him for a couple of series. So it was one of the few times where, you know, I was able to bench my, bench my older brother or totally change the, the, the dynamic there. And did you fall in love with coaching or was it just something that was fun to do as sort of this unique experience and opportunity? Well, it, it changed everything. So they asked me to come out the following year. So I, then I took the second semester of my senior year off. I got a friend of mine from Wesleyan. He became down to Australia with me as the offensive coordinator, and we coached the Q Colts again. And so we win the championship a second year in a row. I go back to Wesleyan and um, finish up my degree. I graduate in January, and I decide, okay, I want to. this is something I want to explore more. I really, I really enjoyed this. And I thought, how can I, how can I learn about coaching? So my college coach had gone to the Cleveland Browns and he was the offensive assistant. So I called Kevin Spencer up. I said, Kevin, is there anything I can do with Browns? I'm done in January. He goes, look, Eric, the only job that I can get you is as a ball boy. And I don't know if you know anything about ball boys, but they're typically 15 years old and you do a ton of laundry and you move things around and I said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be a ball boy. So I go to the Cleveland Browns as a ball boy. And I had to explain that to my mother where I had $25,000 in student loans. I had a degree from Western University and I was going to be a ball boy making less than minimum wage with a bunch of 15 year olds. But I thought this would give me an opportunity to see what pro football was like. This would give me a chance to, to at least understand what it looked like at the highest level. So, so I'm curious. Why isn't there ego at that point, right? Like wh you just took a Australian American football team to back-to-back -to -back championships at 21, 22. 
And now you're you're humble enough to say, I just want to see how the NFL works. I'll go be a ball boy with a bunch of 15-year-olds. Where was your ego during that? Yeah, there, there really was no no ego at that point. To me, I thought, here's an opportunity to go in to one of the most storied franchises in the NFL and, and have an, an opportunity to just examine pro football without – any real serious responsibilities. I could be an, an observer in the truest sense. And then I thought too, if I can get in the door, maybe maybe I could figure out a way to stay. But I knew I had to get in the door. So and, when I was a, and wh- why didn't mom? Why did mom support it? Like why didn't mom say no? Go be a banker or go do something else. What are you What are you doing, Eric? Like what? Wh- why did Why did she support you? Well, she, she definitely had apprehensions, but she, I would imagine she could feel the passion that I had from the experience that I had just taken part of in Australia between the, the two years. She, she heard how I talked about coaching, and, and, and I'm sure from her perspective, it was a function of, okay, you should go take this opportunity. And, and look, I had no value to pro football. I was a a kid who had done a little bit of coaching, but my I had to go to the Cleveland Browns and I had to figure out a way to create value for for myself. And while I was a ball boy in the spring, okay, they have the OTAs. There's a break between OTAs and training camp, which is what most teams are coming out of right now. So during that period, I didn't have enough money to fly home. Like I, I just wasn't in that spot. So I volunteered in the public relations department for that month in Cleveland and went back to being a ball boy for the summer, thought that I was, okay, it was a great experience. I got to see what it was like and thought that was it. I was going to be moving on. I had to find my next, my next, uh, my next job. But the director of public relations, Kevin Burns, comes to me and they didn't like the summer interns that they had had in public relations. And he said, do you want to be the public relations intern for this year? I thought, yeah, I'll do that. So now I had that chance to go from ball boy to PR intern. I was going to see a whole different part of the organization, but it gave me a chance to stay in the building. And and what is the dream for you at that time? Is your are you at all having a vision of becoming a football coach? Like what what was driving you or motivating you in those moments to take on these internships after You've got a degree from a top university. Because I knew that I knew I had another a whole year now. I could see what it was like um, during the regular season, how things operated. I could I could watch the coaches. I could see I could see how the front office worked um, from in, in a professional organization. I could hear some of those discussions. And then it was I had a year to prove that I could add value in some other context that I could get into to coaching. So what happened is, but are you dreaming? Are you dreaming of, of being in coaching at that point? That's that you're like, I just need to find a way in. And then that's, that's what I want to do. And yeah. When I, when I took that ball boy job, it was okay. If I can get in the door now, once I'm there, I got to figure out how I can stay. And so the opportunity to volunteer in PR led to the PR internship. And then, I would be there every night late and I would be down in the PR room and Bill 
had work overflow. So his coaches were doing things there, sometimes research projects that he wanted to get done. And he knew that I had gone to Wesleyan. He had gone to Wesleyan as well. So to, just I, to clarify, Bill Belichick. Um, yeah. Okay. So sorry, but go on. So, no. So he, he knew I was sitting down in that room that I would stay as late, you know, typically till midnight, my real work was done at five, but I thought, okay, let me be in the building in case somebody needs something. So he'd come down and he gave me, started giving me some projects. So I would take these projects and I would work as hard as I possibly could to give him the best information that I could. And I kept feeding him back these projects. And at the end of the year, Bill said, do you want to stay on as a coaching assistant? And I said, yeah, I'll do that. So now it was, I was part of the coaching staff and, um, and, and I had the opportunity for another year. Can you go back to that moment where he says, do you want to be a coaching assistant? What does that feel like for you, um, you know, in that moment? Can you go back to it and, and remember it? it? It was incredible. I had actually interviewed at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, one of the schools that Wesleyan played. About, I, it was about a mile from my house. And I'd gotten the O-line coaching job at Trinity. And I was just, I, I was on the verge of accepting it. When Bill said, would you like to be a coaching assistant? And it was, it was incredible. It was, it was something that going into it was a, I don't know if dream is the right word. It was a goal. It, it was, that's where I wanted to be. Now I was on the right side of the ball. I was in the right part of the building. The amount of learning that I could do was the floodgates were open and I was ready. I was I was ready to do whatever they asked me to do for as long as they asked me to do it um, in ever, whatever context that, that that took. So I'm sure you get asked by 22-year-olds who graduate from Wesleyan or, or another great university that are interested in getting into football, uh, and they might ask you for advice. What, what advice would you give to them uh, if they have, have had a similar path to you? Well, it, it's funny. I would get a lot of calls from from either Wesleyan or, or other young people who are trying to get into sports. And, and there's a lot of people that want to get into sports. And I wanted to answer the questions. I wanted to, to be a resource for them. And so I'd make those calls and, and we talk and, and I'd say, okay, are you willing to take an unpaid internship? Are you willing to uh, work in a different part of, of the organization? Uh, and, and there'd be silence. And, and they said, well, that's, that's not my goal. That's not my dream. And I was trying to explain to them that just like I had no value to the Cleveland Browns, they had no value. And, and you can't go in as the assistant GM or the assistant head coach. You've got to go in and show that, that you can add value in whatever context that is. Maybe it's getting coffee. Maybe it's getting someone's car washed. And then you've got to show that every day, they should never let you go. And while you're there, you've got to use that opportunity to do the best job of what, whatever you're being asked to do, but also to learn, to, to, to take into everything else and figure out how things work. And you got to ask a lot of questions. People will help you. People want to see you be successful, but you've got to be willing to ask those questions. And, and um, it, was, it was a little disappointing some of the responses that you got because it was, it was much more like, uh, yeah, that's not really what I'm looking for. And it, look, it's not for everybody. 
Well, it's, it's an interesting thing. I just spoke at a conference and there were a lot of people that are interested in getting into basketball at the conference. And, you know, I would ask people, well, why are you at this conference? And they would say, I, I just want to find a way to get into a basketball organization. And in my head, I was thinking like, man, I feel like a lot of these people are taking the wrong approach, which is they should be asking questions to find out what are these organizations looking for? What do they need help with? Rather than, I, you know, I want to get in so that I can be part of an organization. And if you flip that on its head and you really just try to ask questions and listen, like you're saying, then they will tell you, you will, you will hear what somebody or, or what an organization needs because they'll, they'll tell you. And to your point, that might be coffee. <laughs> it might be shagging balls. Um, but if you can pay attention and learn, and I love what you're talking about, just adding value. I think it, it goes, especially for people trying to break into sports because it's sexy and people, uh, it's easy to fall in love with sports. Um, if you can find a way to listen and ask questions and find out, well, what do you need? What do you, what are you guys hoping to get? And if you try to push your agenda on them, and it's kind of sales 101, right? Like sales is a lot about listening and asking the right questions to find out how you can service somebody. Um, so it sounds like that was the approach you took, which is which is really cool. Well, I also would tell people that you can't say no. There is no no. Don't, don't forget it. Whatever whatever the question is, it's yes. And, and Bill has an incredible program, and we used to call it either 2020s, which is 20 years old and $20,000 a year, or PhDs, which is poor, hungry, and driven. Hmm. And so he would get a group of us. And, and in Cleveland, I was in, um, uh, I started as a ball boy and I was in PR. Scott Pioli, who was the general manager of the Kansas City Chiefs, was in operations. Jim Schwartz, who's the head coach of the Lions and now the D coordinator for Philly, was in operations. So when I say operations, that means driving people to and from the airport. That means getting cars washed. That means doing whatever tasks needed to get done to help other people be successful. Mike Tannenbaum um, was, in, was a intern there. George Kokinis, uh, he, was in, uh, he was in operations as well. Tom Dimitrov, the GM of the Falcons, he was on the grounds crew. So the, the thought process is you get a lot of these smart guys who, and you don't pay them very much or, or anything at all, and you give them their first job, their way to break into the organization. And then if they do well, you give them a little bit more and a little bit more. And eventually, there's this sort of pyramid effect. And, and the guys that really love sports and really were willing to, to do anything that needed to be done to help the organization be successful, they all moved up. So being around all of those people who went on to have success either in front offices or coaches. Uh, what were some of the lessons that you took from those people uh, along the way or, or lessons that you've learned from them down the road? Well, what, one of the, the biggest things that I think we, we all learned together is the importance of, of being humble, the importance of, of being willing and, and um, excited about contributing in whatever way we could we could contribute and, and all those guys, even as they, they moved up to different positions, understood and appreciated the, the values and value and contribution of, of all the different people in, in the organization, because we had done a lot of those jobs. We knew how hard people worked to, to support uh, 
what was going on. And it's work ethic, uh, sacrifice. My sister, Pam, I would get frustrated with her at times where she'd say, you're, you're so lucky. You're, you're so lucky you get to do what you love. And, and I was frustrated in the sense that there was nothing lucky about missing all of those holidays. There was nothing lucky about missing all of those family events. There's nothing lucky about working weekends and, and nights. Those were decisions. And that saying, the, the harder I work, the luckier I get, I, I almost felt like it was it diminished the the amount of, of effort it took to, to to move up. Do you think that the environment made those people or those people made the environment? I think that it was a it was the right marriage of environment and people because that environment is not for everyone. And and you hear people talk about New England and you know why can't we have more fun playing football and football should be fun and they don't have fun there. And look, what's fun? Winning is fun. You know, going 5-11, that's, that's not fun. Going 14-2, winning Super Bowl, that, that's a lot of fun. So you're not going to get a lot of casual Fridays and, you know, pinatas and, and all those things. That, that's, that's not the environment that, that we were in. But we were also built and, and embraced that environment as well. So I, I, maybe it was a weeding out process through the, through the PhD program that, that set up the relationship. And as, as you progress in your career and, and find new opportunities, when did you start really thinking like, yeah, you know, I could be a head coach. Like when did that come into the forefront for you? Well, so my next step, I, it was funny. Um, we ended up going to the playoffs that year that I was the, the PR intern, okay? And we were predicted to go to the Super Bowl. So one of the jobs that we, I'm in a staff meeting and Bill, it's right before summer vacation, gives everybody two books. And said, look, if someone's willing to take the time to write a book about football, we can read it. So our summer reading, I had two books that I had to read and I had to report back to the staff on when we got back from vacation. So I had Sam Rattigliano's two books, who was a previous head coach of the Browns, the Cardiac Kids. So it's the first time I've ever spoken to staff meeting. And I'm, I'm nervous, but I read those books. I did a really good job. I was ready, and, and I felt like I, I gave quality information. But at the end, I said, hey, Bill, I, I think you should know this because it's happened throughout the history of the Browns, but every head coach who's gotten a contract extension has been fired the next year. And so everybody... You know, and it's so it's so ridiculous to even think that way because we just gone to the playoffs. We got a big extension. Everybody laughed. I say, hey, I just I just wanted to let you know that's the history that's been here. As public relations, so, right there, right there, you got to know. So, but at the end of the year, Bill gets fired. So he gets fired, and um, uh, Ted Marchabroda comes in and says, offers me a job, the offensive assistant, and to go to the first ever team with the Baltimore Ravens. It was part of a, a, a bigger story because the Browns were moving to Baltimore. And I remember I was, I was dating a girl at the time, and I'm on the phone with her, and she says, you know, the Browns are moving to Baltimore. I said, what are you talking about? If I'm in the building. Don't you think I'd know if the Browns are moving to Baltimore? She said, turn on the TV. I turned the TV, and Art Modell's in downtown Baltimore making the announcement. And 
I was in, I didn't know. I didn't know. So we played the rest of the season in Cleveland with that move pending. And I remember the last game ever at the old stadium in Cleveland, there started to be this knocking in the fourth quarter. It's like boom, 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 boom. And it got louder and louder and louder. It was people taking the seats from the stadium. We could only go to the 50-yard line because they were throwing M80s. We had to go to the 50, turn around, and go away from the dog pound. There were uh, riot police underneath the stadium. So it was this incredibly tumultuous time. It wasn't your traditional, hey, the team didn't do well, the head coach gets fired. And that taught me that anything can happen in the NFL. And then um, so we go to Baltimore uh, with a, I mean, a really dramatic previous year in, in Cleveland with the move and, and everything surrounding that. And so you go to Baltimore, you're working for a new head coach. Uh, what was that experience like for you? It was, it was radically different because Ted, Bill Belichick actually got his start with Ted Marchabrota uh, in, I think it was 1975. And so now I was working for Ted and Ted was, was very much like a grandfather, very, very kind, very soft-spoken um, and pretty different than the environment that I had, I had just, uh, just in, encountered and, and experienced. Um, so it was, it was good to see a different way of doing things. It was really good to learn a different style of offense. Ted had created the K gun, the first no huddle. He really pushed that and revolutionized that in, in Buffalo. So to, to experience that, it was, it was another, great step in the learning process. And I worked with Kirk Ferentz coaching the offensive line and got to learn that, that part of the ball. And, and I think I'd asked earlier at this point, now you're a coach, right? And you are embedded in it, but you're young. I mean, how old are you when you're in Baltimore? Oh, I'm probably about 25 years old. And um, yeah, so I'd been a ball boy for a summer, a PR intern for a year, a coaching assistant, now with the offensive assistant, and at the end of the season, I get a call from Bill and says, hey, do you want to come to the New York Jets to be the defensive assistant and help me in the secondary? So I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. So Parcells is going to be the head coach, and Bill Belichick is going to be the defensive coordinator, but Parcells can't get out of his contract at that point from New England, so Belichick is actually the head coach for a week. So there's another, this is another experience in the NFL where, you know, Parcells can't get out of his contract. Bill Belichick's the head coach. They trade. Uh, I forget what the draft pick was to get Parcells free. So, and I experienced that. And and I grew up watching Bill Parcells. I, my dad was a diehard Giants fan. So this was this was pretty incredible at at this point to to be able to do that. The rest of the guys in the staff so it was me, Belichick, Al Gro, and Romeo Cornell. That was the defensive staff. And Parcells was the head coach. It was a perfect. It was like getting it was getting my PhD in football. So the, this is the third landing spot for you. And I'm I'm listening to these staffs, and um, there are head coaches littered all throughout these staffs. How common is that in the NFL? Or is do you think that the staffs that you were working on were were rare? Well, I know that that group that we had in Cleveland in 1995 was rare. I mean, the amount of 
of head coaches and, and general managers and, and league executives, Ozzie Newsom. That was his his first um, experience in, in coaching in front office. Uh, who else? Um, gosh, I, I know I'm leaving about four or five different guys. But even what 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 do you think? What would they scan for? Do you think it was just scanning for people that were willing to do whatever it takes, and then they would attract people, and then it was sur- survival of the fittest. If you're willing to do whatever it takes, and then you have that work ethic and that desire and that that desire to learn. Like, what was at the core that you think brought all those people to the same place? Well, I, I do. I I feel like it was uh, you get an opportunity. They're going to test your resolve by putting you in a place that has nothing to do with what you are interested in. They're going to find out how well you could do the job that you were tasked to do and give you opportunities to prove yourself in other areas. Then they were going to then they were going to promote you or, or give you another opportunity if you if you did well, and you were going to learn the right way. You you learned the right way to do things. You learned. Um, there, there were no, I hate to be cliche, but there were no shortcuts in the way that we approach things. And do you think that that culture uh, also was how the players were, were not, I don't want to say treated, but was that the culture of the players as well? We're going to empower you. We're going to give you opportunities to learn. And, you know, you're, you're either going to learn how to do it right or, or this isn't going to, this isn't going to work for you. Yeah. And then that's how it is in New England. And, and, that's why they've had really unprecedented success since we had we struggled the first year and went five and eleven. The you know the volume of, of Super Bowls that have been won and the, the volume of Super Bowls that they've played in, the amount of division championships. It's a very it's it's a hard environment, um, and but it's the right environment and it gives you an opportunity to compete for a championship every year. Yeah, I've never even thought about it. It's pretty cool for me to just sit here and and learn from you on this. Is New England they do they give guys opportunities that maybe other teams wouldn't feel comfortable giving. I just think of like all the wide receivers that have gone through there, uh, like the kid Hogan who played lacrosse. It's like all right, we're going to give you a shot, and if you're successful, we're going to give you another shot, and we're gonna we're gonna keep him sort of empowering you. And if you screw up, like we're not we're also not going to put up with that. Like they're consequences and um but i I don't think i'd ever really realized that that is a cultural element of you know we are are fearless enough to give guys opportunities and if they earn it uh you know uh bruce bochi uh with the san francisco giants very much talks about we're just gonna play the best guys and doesn't matter what they're making it doesn't matter you know, what their past was. If we feel like you can help us win, you're playing. And I remember I was in San Francisco when they won the World Series. And um, that year, Barry Zito was the highest paid player on the team and he didn't even make like the playoff roster. Uh, They just, they didn't even make it. And, uh, you know, Pablo Sandoval, like barely played because he was overweight and they played this guy, Wanu Ribe, who was a journeyman over Sandoval, who was his young up and coming star. And I remember like being at the parade and seeing Sandoval and Zito and they were there, but they didn't really contribute. And then two years later, Zito pitched game one and pitched a gem and Sandoval was the world series MVP. And I think, 
Um, it, it just speaks to, uh, I think, the culture that Bochi and the Giants have been pretty successful under Bochi's run. I think they've won three World Series. Um, and you hear him, he says, yeah, it's really simple. We're just going to play the guys who give us the best chance to win. And I would imagine that a lot of organizations, that's not necessarily the approach that they take. Well, I was, I'm curious to get your thoughts. It, it's, it's simple. It's a simple concept. And it's the absolutely right concept. It, it's You have a responsibility as a head coach to do that. But it's a lot harder to execute than than you would think because if you draft a guy number one, whether it's number one overall or in the first round or or high, if you're the GM, you feel like that guy's talented and you want him to play. And and if you're the coach and you're going to play the best players, there sometimes can be friction between the personnel guys and the coaching staff because maybe he's not the best player. But the personnel guys may feel like you're not giving him enough opportunity. You're not coaching him the right way. So friction can happen there. The same thing with, with big money free agents. You bring a guy in and he's culturally not the fit that you thought he was in. You were wrong. You're wrong. But being willing to admit, hey, I'm wrong, is, is harder for guys to do. And you also have to explain that to the owner. You've got to explain to the owner how you made that mistake. But here's the one thing that I that that um, Rodney Harrison told me that I think is is absolutely uh, the best approach. When I became a head coach of the Jets, he said, "Look, Harry, tell the players the truth. They may not like what you're saying, but they respect the fact that you told them that and you gave them a chance to to fix it. And being able to have that honesty, like, here's the problem." Here's what you have to fix. If you take care of that, then this is what will happen. Again, it's it's easier said than, than done. You know, when I work with pro athletes, the worst thing that they say to me, when, when they're really having a tough time with the coach, they'll say, he's playing mind games with me. That's what they'll say. Like, he, I feel like he's playing mind games with me. Uh, and they don't have clarity as far as what their job is and how their coach wants them to do it. And that leads to clutter. And clutter is really hard to perform with. And, uh, and it's interesting, you know, obviously the Patriots always talk about do your job, do your job, do your job. Once again, simple, but hard to actually create an environment where that is what everyone's focused on. And it's very singular in that way. The other thing I was thinking about as you were talking is I have friends who are NFL agents and they will talk about representing a guy who might be a six round pick. And they will say Belichick is almost always there at that guy's pro day, um, on the sideline watching him. It seems like he's also very involved with the draft and that process. Whereas maybe other coaches sort of, it's, it's very much my job is to coach the guys on the field. General manager's job is to, um, you know, pick the groceries and then it's my job to sort of cook with the groceries I got. Can you talk about that dynamic as a coach and, and how that works uh, with the general manager and, and what you've seen work and, and what you see maybe, maybe not work? Yeah. I, I feel like one of the biggest mistakes that, that guys make if they become a head coach is they, they, they're the offensive coordinator or the defensive coordinator. And, and that may be what got them the job. And they, and they say, okay, I'm going to handle this side of the ball. And they can do that well. And they, and they can add real value there. But as the head coach, you need to be the head coach of the whole team. And when you're spending a disproportionate amount of time with, with one side of the ball, it, it can get very skewed. One of the things that Bill Belichick does 
really well is he understands what's going on in all three phases. He's on top of that stuff and he's constantly working to make sure that, that, that he sees the big picture. Um, and I, and I don't think that happens with everybody. The same thing with the draft or free agency or the salary cap. You got to understand that the head coach, how the pieces fit in the fit into place. And if you pay a guy X amount of dollars, there's not unlimited resources. You may not pay the bill right now, but you're going to have to pay the bill in the future. So there's short-term plans, there's long-term plans. And some guys will become head coach and say, look, I'm, that's not for me. I'm going to coach the offense. I'll be the head coach of the team. I'll do the press conferences where Bill Belichick, Bill Parcells, those guys were true head coach in the sense of overseeing everything. What made what made Parcells special? Well, Bill Bill had a has a tremendous uh, ability to understand what motivates someone. He gets a sense of, of of what affects them, what moves them, and then he he challenges them in that way. And and uh, you know, he, I love talking to Bill, and he became a great mentor as as I got to know him and he, and he still is. I remember one day it was uh it was the first day I got to coach on the field and I was gonna coach the Gunners and Vice, which is the outside part of the punt team. And I really prepared this. I'm telling you, I, I practiced in, in in front of Julie and I made sure I'd gone through the details and I was ready for my opportunity. There's about ten thousand people at Hofstra because Bill Going to Jets was a, a really uh, uh, interesting thing, and there were a lot of fans there, but it's quiet. And I'm coaching the Gunners and Vice, and I think I'm doing a great job. And so I suddenly hear, hey, Mangini, why don't you stop preaching and start coaching? Like my heart drops as Parcells. I'm thinking I'm doing a great job. This is like Hall of Fame stuff. So I get through that, and then later in the practice, we're on the sideline, and Belichick is coaching the DBs, and I'm with the young DBs, and I've got to give them the plays. So I'm giving them the plays so they, they're following practice. All of a sudden, the voice comes across again, hey, man, Jeannie, why don't you try start paying attention? Ourselves again, I'm like devastated. My first day. So walking off the field, and he's a little bit ahead of me, but he's alone. So I run up to him, I'm like, Bill, like, why, did, why, why did you think I was preaching, not coaching? And why did you think I wasn't paying attention? I was absolutely paying attention. He goes, no, 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 Eric. It was just your day to get yelled at. That's it. You did a great job. It was just your day to get yelled at. So it was that idea of like, from then on in, whenever he yelled at me, I knew it was just my turn to get yelled at or somebody else's turn. And it, was, it wasn't, it was just part of him pushing things forward. What What did that do for you? Um you know, that ability to know that some days it's, I'm just going to get yelled at. What does that do for you as a coach? Again, it goes back to the, the uh, honesty component. Understanding what he was doing made it, I, I, I completely accepted it. And I thought, okay, yeah, I get it. I get it. And there was never a problem, never a problem at all. And, and uh, just knowing, knowing it was a difference. What what players were you around uh, during that time? And we're going to get to when you had to slide over a couple of seats and become a head coach. But you mentioned Rodney Harrison earlier. What are what players 
did you notice during your time, maybe as an assistant coach, where you were really in the weeds with guys, uh, where you noticed that their mindset was was really sharp? And uh, if you have any stories or any examples of what they would do to keep themselves mentally sharp, you know, I'm just really curious about that sort of stuff. Well, Tom Brady to me is is probably one of the best examples. And there's this, I'm sure that m- most people now think of Tom Brady as as who he is. He, he, was it five-time Super Bowl champion? He's married to Giselle. He's all those things, but that's that's not who Tom was. Tom was a six-round draft pick out of Michigan. His first year, he drove a canary yellow Jeep, and um, he had he had great traits, but he wasn't a very effective football player. And I used to sit with Brad Seely, who was our special teams coach in New England, and we had this post-practice period where the DBs would cover the backs and they'd cover the tight ends and the wide receivers. And we'd bet a dollar per rep just to make it interesting for us. And I won a ton of money because Tom was throwing the ball in the dirt or Tom was, um, you know, just, just couldn't get it there. Uh, but Tom had traits and, and there's a great interview that he did in 2000 where he talks about watching Drew Bledsoe and, how how his level of, of preparation and being able to understand um, not only what, what his assignment was, but how the defense worked, how the changes worked. And, and going through those plays as he was watching Drew Bledsoe operate. And, and I thought it was, um, I think it's a great example of, of awareness. And, and awareness to me is, is, is different than knowledge Awareness is, is levels of learning. And in pro football, we start with, do you know what, what you're supposed to do? That, that's the first level. And then the second level is, do you know what your opponent is doing and, and how that affects what you have to do? And then the third level is, do you know the situation in the game? The third level of, of learning, because nothing happens in a vacuum. Everything happens within a, within a context. And the, the last level of learning is do you know the human being that you're playing against? Because every human mm-hmm. being that you face is so different. And so you can have knowledge of what you're doing, but Tom and great players have those levels of learning. They've got awareness. They see how things fit in a total picture as opposed to in these, in these sort of boxes. When you say traits, that Tom had traits, what were the traits that you saw in him you know, before, as you said, he became this, this superstar, what were the traits that you noticed? Uh, well, he was very bright. Uh, he was tough, both physically and mentally. And, and a lot of times we, we think of toughness purely in the sense of physically tough. Uh, he was hardworking. Um, he was competitive. He's the type of guy and and these are these are all traits that I I use to draft players in, in New York with the Jets. Competitive in the sense that he didn't want to lose at checkers against you know his ten year old nephew. Like you want that that crazy competitiveness. Selfless was the next thing, and then the last trait, which I think a lot of players miss on, is football was truly important to him. Football. It, there was, he would probably have played even if the money wasn't what the money was. And, and you, you look for that 
in players because they're willing to make sacrifices that other players won't. I think that last part point is so important. And I think, you know, I worked with university of Maryland football and I was amazed at how many guys didn't really love football and they loved the idea. They loved uh, the, the fame or, or potential paycheck that they could get from it or take care of their family. But if I compare that to the college basketball guys that I've been around, there's a distinct difference. And uh, the basketball guys really, a lot of them did love basketball. Occasionally you'd run into like a seven footer or a big guy who basketball chose them rather than them choosing basketball. But I was amazed at football at high levels, how many guys they really would not choose to do it. And, and certainly guys are retiring early because of, um, all of the information that's coming out as far as concussions and, you know, other, other stuff. But I think another part that doesn't get told is that some of these guys might not just like, they, they don't like football. Um, like I, I have a friend, as I said, who's an agent and one of his guys retired because he just, he didn't love football. Like, and he retired at 26 and passed up on a $20 million contract because he wanted to pursue something different. Um, and, and when, that love, that love, is the difference between because it, it's hard. It pro sports. I know that it looks really glamorous and and exciting, and 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 people would say I trade my life in a second for that. But it's it's hard, and it takes a dramatic toll on on these guys' bodies, and and there's a lot of sacrifices, especially if you're going to do it well and and you're going to compete at at a high level. So if you don't have something intrinsically motivating you to be successful if it's all just about money or fame or those you're not going to be able to do the hard things that it takes to be great or even to to live up to your potential so what was it about football that you loved i mean you've got this great education uh what was it that, that drew you in what what about the game uh were you passionate about well I, and are you still passionate about yeah it, what, what i loved about about football, especially in the NFL, was the way that it combined so many different elements of other jobs. So you had the the competitive component, you had the um, the draft, you know the, that that idea of, of researching and trying to find players. You had the business side with the salary cap and and, and negotiations and, and things along that those lines. Um, you had to deal with the, the medical side and public relations and the media, all those, all those different elements. I, I loved, especially as a head coach, being able to be involved in, in all those aspects of it. Football, in, in terms of the game, um, some of my greatest experiences in life have, have been playing the game, and, and whether it was winning or, or losing with people that you, you care about, um, the friendships that you build, um, it's, it's those things that, that drove me and, and still drive me. Um, and then I want my kids to have the opportunity to experience it. Maybe it's not in football, maybe it's in a different sport, but, uh, it's hard to convey those lessons as a parent. Um, but I do think sports gives you an opportunity to, to teach a lot of things. Did you play other sports growing up? Uh, I did. I, I played basketball uh, up until eighth grade, and then you know my uh, lack of, of handles 
uh, and shooting and every other aspect, I think limited me there. Uh, baseball a little bit, but really it was, it was football. And that's what I love and, and so your brother played football. Uh, was your town big into football? Why, why was football the one that, that sort of brought you in? I, I don't, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I loved uh, watching football with my dad on Sundays. I loved the Dallas Cowboys growing up. I cried when, you know, the catch happened and, and, um, yeah, I, I wrote letters to, I was that little boy that I saw write so many letters to, to us, whether it was the Jets or the Patriots or, um, or the Browns. I just, it resonated with me. And, um, I don't think I've ever been able to identify what chord it hit or why it hit the way it did, but it did from the time I, w- I was little. And what were the values that, that mom and dad passed down to you? Um, just f- familial values. What were, what were the things they taught you from your childhood? Well, my dad, who I lost at a, at a young age at 16, he, his work ethic um, was always so prominent and we had five kids in our family and then uh, we grew up in a, in a middle-class house and I, I know what he earned and, and uh, you know, as a dad now and, and, and in that situation, it's amazing uh, the, the life that, that he gave us, but it was, we were going to do our best at, at everything we tried and we were going to finish the things that, that we committed to um, he was uh, also had a a very caring side. I remember we were walking. We'd gone to see a play at the Hartford Stage Company, and it was winter time. And there was a homeless man who was on the street, and he was cold. My dad walked over and gave him his jacket. Never said anything to the rest of us. Just took off his jacket and put it on this man. And I, I didn't ask him about it. I didn't. I was pretty young at the time, but I won't forget it and he would do a lot of work with his company with with the homeless uh in, in hartford and um, never never made a big deal out of it never um, pushed anybody it just he felt like he felt like everybody at some point was going to need an opportunity everybody at some point was going to need a little bit of a hand and he wanted to to try to give people that hand and then losing him at 16, how did that impact you? It was, uh, it was devastating. He was, we had a traditional family. My mom stayed home and took care of the house and took care of the kids and dad worked and dad took care of the bills. And he was a very strong personality. So when suddenly he left, it was, it was like, now what? Now, now, now what happens? And uh, I was the youngest of five. So I had great support from, from my brothers and sisters, but it, it also clarified things to me in the sense that we don't know what's going to happen and life can be taken from you at any point or life can change it at any point and nothing is, is predestined. You control the things that happen to you. And you have every right to be as successful as, as the next person. You have every opportunity to, to do that. And, and it's 
If your ship doesn't come in, then you have the right and opportunity to swim out to it. Um, so it it clarified things from that sense, and and I was determined to to be successful. So at 34 years old, a, sh- a big ship is 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 coming your way, and and you swim out to it. Uh, talk about what it's like to um, take a leap and uh, take on a a big responsibility and and become a head coach at such a young age. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was challenging. It was challenging in in, in a lot of ways, um, but one one of the ways was was dealing with the media. So when I was at New England, I never had any dealing with the media. But the rule those rules weren't in place. I had one press conference when I was a defense coordinator there in August, and there was about six people in the room, and I think two of them were sleeping. And I answered about four questions. Then I go for my first opening press conference in New York. And there's 50 cameras in the back of the of the auditorium, and it's like, ooh, okay, you you aren't in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. This is this is totally different, and um, I had very strong football fathers. I had Bill Belichick as a football father. I had Bill Parcells as a football father. And I, I'm sure it happens to you with, with your kids as it does with my kids. I can hear my parents' voice and, and some of the things that I say to, to the, my kids. And, and I think that I looked at what they did and said, okay, who am I to change what's been such a successful formula as a 34-year-old guy, who am I to do something different than Bill Parcells or Bill Belichick with the volume of Super Bowl wins that they've had? And I was going to have a program like that, which I firmly believe is the right way to do it, where I made the greatest mistake was not doing it in an authentic way. Instead of worrying about how Bill Parcells or Bill Belichick would have done it, I needed to take the best of those things and do it in a way that was authentic to my personality. Um, and so I think that was, was one of the hardest lessons that I learned in, in New York. What part of your personality was, was missing there? Uh, well, I think the ability to, um, I, I think I was fairly rigid and, and I do, uh, I'm more compromising than that. I, I think I do do a good job of being able to see different sides of, of issues. Uh, I think sense of humor was was missing. There were a lot of a uh, lot of laughs early on. Um, a lot of just I would say just feeling comfortable in my own skin as a young head coach. Um, and and I I feel like I got better as I went along. But unfortunately, once you get labeled with something, it's harder to to overturn that label. One of the things I'm curious about is I would imagine you go from New England where, as you said, there aren't a lot of cameras on you. Uh, I'm assuming you can go into restaurants and stuff and you're probably able to be pretty low key. And then you're the head football coach of the New York Jets, you know, in the biggest city in the country, uh, biggest media in the country. Um, what was it like for you personally going from, you know, being able to blend in to probably sticking out? Well, it was funny early on. I, I didn't stick out at all. I was there about a week and I was in the elevator in the hotel and I'm head to toe jet gear going up to my room. This guy gets into, 
uh, the hotel. He must have just checked in. He's got his bag. He says, hey, what do you think of that new head coach of the Jets? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, I really like him. I, I think he's smart. I think he's got a good plan. But yeah, he's so young, though. I don't know if he can do it. I'm like, yeah, he's young, but I, I'm, I'm really encouraged by what he's done so far. So yeah, okay, we'll see. So that was one early experience. And then Julian. You I, needed about <laughs> five to 10 million more of those experiences. <laughs> so then Julie and I come, we get to draft time and we're, we're living in this little town called Garden City and we want to go and just have lunch. And um, we've got the, the two kids. So we see this restaurant and it says, you know, Jets draft day party being held here. I think it was, I think it was the day of the draft and we were walking around just spending a little time together. It, it was, I'm not quite sure the exact context, but it was right, right there in that, that time frame. So we go to the front door and ask if we can come in. And the guy's like, no, private party, just for the Jets draft. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, all right, we'll head to that restaurant down there. Thanks, though. Um, so yeah, we didn't quite, I didn't quite get recognized early. Uh, later on when it started to happen, um, it was exciting initially and, and fun initially, and then got more and, and more challenging as, as you went along. There's, there's real value to being able to kind of raise your kids outside of the, the glare of, of others. And as a football coach, as a head coach, uh, what was it like for you? Just walk us through what that lifestyle is like um, as a as a head coach. Well, it it when I first got the job, I remember Bill Parcells called me up and said, "Hey, not all it's cracked up to be, is it?" And started laughing, and and I think it was he who said, "There's going to be five things that come up every day that you didn't plan for, that you didn't expect." And that was probably the, the the truest statement that anybody had said. So I had a plan each day. I had a plan how the day was going to go, the things I was going to accomplish, what I was going to get done. And at the end of the day, that plan never materialized. And I, I started tracking what I was doing because I, I was thinking, you know, 9, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, I didn't get done the things I said I was going to get done. And so many so many other unexpected items come up and then you've got the during training camp the 90 guys on the roster you've got between 20 and 25 coaches then you've got a scouting staff you've got a front office staff you've got a medical staff you've got all these different human beings with the problems that that human beings encounter and and the different demands that 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 need to be met and you also realize that your interaction with someone maybe five seconds and maybe the 50th most important thing in your day. But as the head coach, it's the first, it's the most important thing to them during the course of the day. So you have to make sure that you're, you're constantly giving each one of these, these issues, the attention you can. So it's, it was, it was a hard adjustment. I'd say the last thing and, and, uh, is knowing how Bill did it, Bill Belichick did it and how on top of things he was, he set a very high ball. I had on a different podcast, Melissa Agnes is her name. And she said to me, there's a difference between issues and crisis. And uh, a, a great CEO needs to create systems where the issues can be dealt with without their knowledge. 
And that crisis comes right to them as soon as it needs to. And so I think what you're sort of referencing is if you're trying to deal with all these small issues that, that maybe someone else could have handled in some ways better than you, um, maybe that's actually getting in the way of some of the crises that you actually do need to handle. And I think all CEOs and people in management situations are constantly challenged by, do I put out these small little fires? Uh, and what are the what are the repercussions for for doing that? And how do I make sure? And we see it now um, with you know sexual harassment or big big crises, um, you know Enron for example, Christ, like big crises that don't get to the CEO or the head coach or the general manager or whoever it might be. And it was interesting to hear her make a distinction around crisis and and issues. And, and I'm sure part of that is having the wisdom to understand the difference. And and when you're young and when you're new, it takes a little while to figure out, okay, is this a small fire that'll go up by itself or is this a small fire that could eventually turn into a big fire? And it's um, there's, there's no playbook or manual that you're given when you become a head coach. It's sort of like, hey, good luck. Go win a bunch of games. And and you you learn everything on, on the on the fly. Who was supporting you uh, during that transition? Well, it, it, I was able to um, have some guys around me that that I um, that I knew well uh, in in the coaching world, and then I was friends with Mike Tannenbaum from our time in Cleveland together when he was an intern. We were PhDs together. Uh, so, and he was, he eventually became the GM there and we had a great relationship. We had a great working relationship and that, that was, um, that was extremely helpful. Then being able to call up guys like Bill Parcells and say, Hey, you have any thoughts here? Uh, Ron Shapiro, my father-in-law would talk about having a personal advisory board and I probably should have done a better job of that. Um, Ron was definitely on the personal advisory board. It's just people that you can call up and say, hey, let me run this by you. Or what do you think? And and sometimes just to vent who can relate to the situation that you're in because it is very different than being an assistant coach or a coordinator. John Calipari talks about, I think he has five people that he calls like his inner circle and he talks about in his book. And he said, those people, I, one of them is a sports psychologist that he can go to. And, you know, I know that he's just going to give it to me straight. He's not going to sugarcoat it and he's not going to judge me. Uh, and then he's got the other people in his life. Uh, so I love the idea of an advisory board. And I think that that is actually true for everybody. Uh, certainly at, at a head coaching level in a high pressure, high stakes situation um, where it can be lonely, it's definitely necessary. But I think for the everyday Joe, I think part of the issues where we have high levels of depression and anxiety is that we're not creating um, you know, teams of advisory boards that can help us navigate the challenges of, of life because life's going to throw you uh, challenges. And, and speaking of a challenge, what's it like to then get fired? Uh it gets easier. Um, it's, uh, it was, it was really hard. It was, um, when I got let go in New York, we had, you know, I, I had put so much time and, and, um, not just time and effort and energy, but emotion. And it was so, so vested in it and, and felt like we had 
done a lot of great things. We'd won two out of the three years. We're nine and seven the year that, uh, that I did get fired. Uh, but as a family, all, all the things that, that had been part of, part of that process, uh, it was, it was, it was extremely difficult. But one of the great things that I was able to do is address the team. And when I went and addressed the team, uh, what I told them is, look, we, we've come so far and we've done a lot of really positive things that have taken an extremely, um, high amount of work and, and effort and sacrifice to do. So regardless of who's addressing you the next time you have a team meeting, make sure that you get, you take them in as quickly as you can. Make sure that and you make them part of this team as, as quickly as you possibly can because I wanted those guys to be successful. I wanted, um, I wanted them to hopefully have the opportunity to finish the, the job that, that we had started. So, um, you know, Rex Ryan ended up coming in after me and that for Rex and I were friends and they did go to the AFC championship game, uh, you know, with that, with that group of guys that we put together. So I was proud of that. And what's it like to get another opportunity? And uh, what did you do differently when when you took over the Browns? Well, I got the the opportunity quickly, and um, I've interviewed about two or three days after I was let go. I've actually interviewed when I was really really sick, um, so I didn't have any idea whether I'd done a good job or, or not done a good job. But I got got the chance to do that, and I tried to take a step back and say, okay, what were the biggest mistakes I made? And, and authenticity uh, was, was one of them. So I made sure when I talked to the team for the first time, so, okay, this is, this is how I operate. This is why I operate this way. And if you have questions with the things that I'm doing or why I'm doing what I'm doing or why I'm saying what I'm saying, you need to be able to have the honest conversation and you need to come up and, and spend the time with me. Um, I tried to let him like, give him some insight in, into who I was, what I learned, the mistakes that I had made, the, and what I hoped to get done in, in Cleveland. And it wasn't taken away from the approach that we had, which was still going to be a very disciplined and, and hardworking approach. But it was I wanted them to understand why, why we were doing things. What would you, how would you describe your leadership style? Um, well, I, I think it's evolving. I think it, at some points it was um, probably a little too authoritative. Uh, I do like to understand what's going on and, and why decisions are being made the, the way that, that they're being made. Um, I feel like uh, I do commit to the things that I ask of those uh, that are that are working with me, um, and and that's important to not to not have a double standard. Um, but yeah, I'd say I'd say the the best thing that I've learned as a leader is the need to constantly evolve and to be open and to be aware and to take a step back and, and ask some questions at different points and 
not questions necessarily to people that are, are with you, but questions to yourself of, of, you know, is this the right direction? Is, is this the right way? A little bit of, a, of an after-action report on your, your own style. Were there any routines or habits that you would do as a coach, a morning routines, evening routines that would help you be your best? Mm, you know, one of the things that I did, and this comes from Roman Pfeiffer. Roman Pfeiffer is a linebacker who came to us from New England and he had been a high draft pick and had a good career, but ended up playing some of his best football for us very late in his career. I was sitting behind him one time. He's writing in this notebook. I said, "Roman, what are you what are you doing?" Because I could tell it wasn't it wasn't the football stuff. It wasn't plays. It wasn't anything like that. He said, "Oh, I'm, I'm this is current me talking to future me. What does that mean?" He said, "Well, I write down the things that I do during the course of the week. So I got a massage on Wednesday. How did that make me feel? What did I eat prior to practice? What I eat in the morning?" all these different things that he would do during the course of the week and then what effect it had on his performance. And he said, and then at the end of the week, I'd go back and, and evaluate what happened. And it was a way for me to make up my personal best practices. And he said, can you remember what you did two weeks ago? I said, yeah, kind of. He said, that's my point. You, you don't really, the last time you were in, whether it was a meeting or the last time, it was a bye week or, or whatever the situation was. How well do you really remember what you did to prepare, what hit, what didn't hit? So what I started doing as head coach is try to write down the things that I did during the course of the day. You know, even if it was, you know, a quick note in an Excel spreadsheet, um, and it could be a plus or a minus or just neither, a little dash. This was a good thing. This wasn't a good thing. And I, at the end of the day, it was a, something that came from this that, hey, I want to repeat this. So it was, it was Roman's uh, current me talking to future me I thought was very helpful. Very, very cool. And uh, what was the main uh, challenge that existed in in both Cleveland and New York for you as a head coach? Like, as you look back, and man, what was the one obstacle that would get in the way for you to be successful? Uh, well, I think having a good quarterback is always really, really important. Um, but outside of that, you know, Bill has a challenging personality and has a challenging personality with the media and there's really nothing, he's untouchable and, and, and I feel like whether it was, was me or Josh McDaniels or, Romeo Cornell or Scott Pioli or, or whoever it, it's been, there is an assumption that we're all exactly the same because we come out of, out of the same family. So trying to change that perception and be evaluated on the merits of, of the things that you do and, and your personality was challenging. Um, and I look, I didn't help myself early in New York because I did, you know, adopt a lot of those, a lot of those traits. That was, that was definitely a challenge. Actually, one of the things I wanted to find out about is TV work and uh, what's it like for you um, being behind a microphone and with the lights on and performing there and what's similar or different 
between that and, and coaching? Well, TV was, was something that I had an opportunity to do after I got let go in Cleveland and, and talk to you about losing my dad. And, um, uh, I, I had, and, and sort of the epiphany that I had and, and the, the, the dangers of labels. And, and I've been labeled as being difficult to deal with, with the media and, and not having, um, not being very good on TV. So I saw TV as an opportunity, not just for a new, new challenge, but also uh, an, an opportunity to, to get rid of that, that label. Um, and it's, it's been a really positive experience. It gives me an opportunity. I'm never going to tell a fan who is right or who is wrong. What I want to do with, with fans, and I think fans are more educated now than they ever have been with the amount of information that they have. I want to be able to say, okay, this was the process. This was the thought process that went into this play or this set of decisions. Now, you can agree or disagree with the thought process, but I want to give you that thought process. And I want to provide balance for the coaching staff and for the people who are on the football side to make sure that that message gets out. Oftentimes, it's more exciting if I tell you, be mad at Brian or be mad at at this guy or that guy, but that's that's not the role that I want to play on TV. I want to play more of a okay. Here's here's what happened. What do you think? Is that similar to how you approach coaching, or is it different? Uh, yeah. Well, in in what sense, Brian? What do, what do you mean? Well, I think about coaching. You could take on an emotional. Uh, you could take it emotionally and say. That's wrong. That's right. It's your fault, not your fault. Like there's this concept of evaluations versus just descriptions. So evaluations, like it's good, it's bad. And descriptions are describing what actually happened. And it sounds like from a TV standpoint, you're less interested in evaluating and more interested in describing. And so I'm curious as a coach, if you are more of an evaluator or more of a describer. Well, one of the things that I talked about, especially in Cleveland, when I got there, I said, look, every single Monday that I come in here and we do our, our post-game breakdown, and, and during that breakdown, you're going to do things you did well, things you did poorly, and you're going to put those guys on the big screen. Everybody's going to see what happened, but the, the, the reason is not to place blame, but to make the corrections. And what happens is when you're successful, you have a tendency to gloss over things and, and those problems don't get addressed. So then the next time they come up, there's still a problem and it may be the difference between you losing a game. And then when you lose a game, you tend to be too hard on the players and the emotions are raw and people are sensitive and the coaching doesn't always sink in because the people aren't open. People aren't open to the coaching and the changes. So my thought process from a coaching perspective is I'm going to show you what happened, what went wrong, why it went wrong whether we win or lose with the same emotion because we need to get coached in both these environments. And the only value in this game film is if we can somehow push forward from that. So whether it's winning or losing, it's the same. It's coaching. And that's what we have to do. So I think that's a beautiful place to stop. I want to give you a megaphone to promote anything that you want to promote. I know you do a camp in the, in the summertime back home. So certainly let people know where they can learn about that. Um, and anything else that you feel like deserves a megaphone that, that you want to promote? 
One of the things that, that I have been proud of, we have a foundation my family does in honor of my father, my uncle, it's called the CFM, the Carmine and Frank Mangini Foundation. And it's uh, www.cfm-foundation.org. And we uh, try to create opportunities for under-resourced kids. The high school that I went to was um, an inner city school with all the inner city problems. And I went to school with a lot of really good kids who weren't surrounded by many very good opportunities. So unfortunately, a lot of them took opportunities that weren't very good and, and went down paths that, that I wish they hadn't. And I always felt if I had the opportunity, I wanted to create more of these chances for kids to make good decisions. And so that's what our, our foundation does is, is we try to increase opportunities for, for under-resourced kids and um, we do it through many grants for teachers. We do it through computer scholarships for graduating seniors. We have a camp. We also do um, some projects that, that are, uh, whether it's contributing to um, track meets or some some bigger projects, but all, all within the mission. Awesome. Well, Eric, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for the friendship. As I said, I'm excited to be with your family in a week, and I'm sure they will be crossing me up on basketball courts uh, all over Israel. Last time I was with Eric, uh, his son's got an introduction to my competitive spirit, and uh, it's it's been very rare in my life where I can post people up on a basketball court, and uh, I don't think I'll be able to do that for that much longer with your kids, but oh, believe me, I will be blocking and stealing and you know, setting screens. And, uh, you know, when you step on the court, it's, it's all is, is love in, in war and basketball. So, uh, once again, thanks for coming on. This has been a lot of fun and, uh, learned a lot about the world of football and, uh, your mindset and, and your journey. And for people, if they want to follow me, I'm at Brian Levinson on Twitter and then at intentional underscore performers on Instagram. Eric, I'm assuming there's no social media handles for you. If there are, uh, there are no social media handles for me. Well, we will, uh, <laughs> We'll find your son's <laughs> social medias and, and maybe we'll promote theirs. But uh, thanks for the time and, and looking forward to many more conversations in the future. All right. Have a great time next week. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You know, one of the things that I did, and this comes from Roman Pfeiffer. Roman Pfeiffer is a linebacker who came to us in New England and he had been a high draft pick and had a good career but ended up playing some of his best football for us very late in his career. I was sitting behind him one time, he was writing in this notebook. I said, Roman, what are you, what are you doing? Because I could tell it wasn't, it wasn't the football stuff. It wasn't plays. It wasn't anything like that. He said, oh, I'm, I'm, this is current me talking to future me. What does that mean? He said, well, I write down the things that I do during the course of the week. So I got a massage on Wednesday. How did that make me feel? What did I eat prior to practice? What I eat in the morning? all these different things that he would do during the course of the week and then what effect it had on his performance and he said and then at the end of the week i'd go back and, and evaluate what happened and it was a way for me to make up my personal best practices and he said can you remember what you did two weeks ago i said yeah kind of he said that's my point you you don't really the last time you were in whether it was a meeting or the last time it was a bye week or, or whatever the situation was, how well do you really remember what you did to prepare, what hit, what didn't hit, 
So what I started doing as a head coach is try to write down the things that I did during the course of the day, you know, even if it was, you know, a quick note in an Excel spreadsheet, um, and it could be a plus or a minus, or just neither, a little dash, this is a good thing, this is a good thing, and I, at the end of the day, okay, was there something that came from this that, hey, I want to repeat this.